Father, as Pat said, there's so much craziness going on in this world, but you are our rock. We can stand on you. We can know what truth is. We don't have to be confused. And you were determined to bring this message to us, the message of wisdom, of grace and salvation. Help, it, help us not to consider this a light thing, but to take it to heart and be willing to communicate it to others, just like Paul and Silas and Barnabas and Timothy and everyone who was with them. We pray that you would provide for us just information, insight, and motivation by your Spirit, Lord, to continue to do your will until you take us to be with you. In Jesus' name, amen. So just by way of review, we're looking at Paul's second missionary journey that goes from Acts chapter 15 through Acts chapter 18. And we saw last week that there was a sharp disagreement between Barnabas and Saul. And I told you that I think that if Paul had the opportunity, he would seek to reconcile with Barnabas. Uh, we don't know if that ever took place or not. It's not recorded in the uh, scriptures. But we know that Paul and Jesus both taught reconciliation, and that's why I think he would have taken advantage of that. And then there was this idea of divine compliance in Acts chapter 16. It's where Timothy agreed to be circumcised, and I went through the Romans chapter 14, how we are to bow to the failings of the weaker brother or sister. It's not our job to conform them to what they we think they should be. But it's our job to lead them to Christ and who Christ thinks they should be. And, and we have these hedges and rows for those who are weaker in the faith. And we have to allow for that. We, we shouldn't go and rebuke them saying, you need to live up to what maturity is all about. And you need to do it this way because this is the best way and this is my way and it's the way we've done it. But we want to give room for those who are weaker. And then we also saw how God guides us. And I gave you four words, indicate, obviate, tolerate, and appropriate, or approbate, which means he indicates, God indicates for us where he wants us to go. And he can do that by several ways. He did that with Paul in a vision that he had. He can also do that by dreams. He can do that by several different people coming to us and giving us some scripture or some words of advice. And God can direct us like that. And then God can also obviate. He can prevent us from doing something. That's where we say it's a closed door. We keep on trying to go in one direction and God just closes the door and says, no, I don't want you to go that way. And it was Paul's idea to go to Asia and God goes, no, you're not going to do that. You're going to go up to Macedonia. That's the plan that I have for you. So he prevented Paul from going into Asia and that was by the Holy Spirit who did that. And he tolerates our failings, the things that we do in this life that maybe are not so good. Like Paul and Barnabas, they had an argument and it was so, um, such a great argument between them that they decided to separate. But God still used that. And what happened on the first missionary journey where Paul and Barnabas took off and they went up to places like Antioch and, and a few towns up in there in Derby and Lystra. Well, what happened was after Barnabas and Paul separated, Barnabas went back to all of those churches. He retraced the steps. And then Paul was able to go on, not to Asia, but to Macedonia as a result. And Paul's third missionary journey was to go back in that same route to cover the same territory just to make sure everyone was okay. So the first missionary journey, it had a second visit. And the second missionary journey also had a second visit, which was Paul's third trip out there. And then there's the approbate, the approval or support god god turns to us once we're going in the right direction he shows us that we have his approval he, he does that through the blessings through the direction through people being encouraged and that's how we're supposed to look about how god directs us now this approbate when in verse 11 of chapter 16 it says from troas we put out to sea and we sailed straight for samothrace and the next day to Neapolis. From there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony, and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath day we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, 
who was a worshiper of God, the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. And when she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me to be a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. So Paul went to a place where he thought prayer would be. Normally in a town to start a synagogue, you would have 10 Jewish men, and then they would start the prayer. If there were not, or excuse me, they would start the synagogue if they were able to do so. And if not, they would go to a particular place, maybe outside the city, where the Jews would gather together and pray, or those who believed in God, they would pray. And so that's where Paul went. He went to that particular place. And, of course, he meets up with Lydia, a dealer in purple, who lived in Thyatira but happened to be in Philippi. She was a businesswoman, and so she, she went across the ocean, and she ended up in Philippi. The Neapolis and Philippi and Apollonia and Thessalonica and Berea, all that whole section in uh, Macedonia, that's where Paul was going, and she happened to be there. And that's where the church started. And she ended up being a person of great influence. She took Paul in and made sure Paul and Silas were taken care of. And I'm sure that wasn't the only time that she set something up for Paul to be there. But just one person was used and pointed out to us in Scripture. And probably from her place where she was staying, because she was from Thyatira where she was staying, then she ended up probably being the... Uh, the root or the base camp, so to speak, for the Christianity to go out to Philippi. And of course, the Philippian church, we know, the letter to Philippians, uh, just the great work that they were doing. Uh, Philippi is really called the city of brotherly love, like our city of Philadelphia. That's where we get that word. And so it was tremendous work that Paul was doing there, and Lydia was definitely a part of that. And she used her business in order to support the work of Paul and Silas and certainly other missionaries and pastors probably from that time on. Then there was the deliverance of the slave girl, which we talked about, verses 16 through 21. And, of course, when Paul and Silas showed up, she ended up saying all the time, just badgering these two men, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. And it's like the demons pointing out that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, be quiet. And he would command the demons to come out of the people who were saying that because it wasn't yet his time. But this was something that she just kept on pointing to these guys because also the Jews were in the area and the Jews wanted to persecute them. And later we know that um, Paul and Silas had some run in with the magistrates, the authorities and to where they were thrown into prison. And these guys who owned, so to speak, uh, this young girl who had this demon that would uh, soothsay or try to tell the future, their means of income was taken away. And so they were mad. They were angry. And they riled up the crowd to go against Paul and Silas. And then Paul and Silas were thrown into prison and beaten as a result of that. Now, the authorities which were there, they didn't give any indication that, well, maybe these guys shouldn't be beaten. They just said they're causing a ruckus, and we trust these other people in the city that rose up against Paul and Silas. So we're just going to beat them without finding out any facts about them. Now, Paul and Silas were thrown into prison. Their wounds were not tended to. Normally, you would have a little bit of compassion, and if somebody's being whipped or beaten... Now, Paul and Silas, I'm sure, were bruised and bloodied. And then they were thrown into stocks, and they were thrown into the prison. And that's where the miracle takes place here. It says in verse 22 of chapter 16, The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped down and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. So severely flogged, if you are on the ground and they just keep on beating you, and your skin probably, if they used a flagellum of some type, a flagellum is a, a stick that has leather cords, and there's bone or metal that's attached to that that's real sharp, and when it hits your flesh, it just punctures your flesh, and you start bleeding. Jesus was beaten with the same type of instrument, and so they were hurting. They were a couple of hurting units, and they were thrown into prison. And the prison wasn't the most sanitary environment that you could be in. 
there were no bathrooms uh, in the prison, and you can imagine the filth that they would have been thrown into. And sometimes these prisons, they they were low; you couldn't stand up all the way. Or if you were in stocks, and then the the stocks would end up wearing away at your hands and your feet, and so it was just misery all around. It says again in verse 23, after they had been severely flogged, they were thrown in prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cells and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the other prisoners were listening to them. When was the last time you got a beating and then you just started to start singing? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. And you just start uttering those words. And these guys, they hadn't had their wounds treated. They're bloodied. They probably had a couple of black eyes. Who knows how severely they beat them. And they decided, we're going to pray and thank God for the opportunity to be, to be persecuted for his sake, for his name. And then they just started singing. Have you ever thought about what song you would sing if you just got beaten up? <sighs> You, you would probably want to sing a song Lord, that dealt with something like, Lord, kill my enemies. You, know, so you just get this heart of contentiousness on the inside. Well, I should have done this and I should have done that. And we always think later what we could have done to retaliate in some way, whether verbally or physically. And these guys weren't. You know, and Paul, the guy was a firecracker. Uh, to say the least, you know, he's confronting the high priest, you, know, you whitewashed sepulcher, you know, he, he's just a fiery guy. And now you see him in prison after being beaten and his feet are in the stocks and it's dark and it's in the inner cell. And they're just going, oh, well, this is great, God. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. That's maybe something we could listen to and we're on the freeway or we're in a store and we're not getting our way and people aren't bowing to our wishes and these guys are an example for us on how we're to endure patiently uh, the trials that we go through so instead of cursing men they bless god according to john stott the commentator now verse 26 suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken at once all the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose Now, I was examining this, just thinking about it, how this was taking place. And we'll get to the Philippian jailer here. Now, the Philippian jailer, he was asleep. He got woken up by the earthquake. And all these gates fly open. And he thinks the prisoners are all gone. They have all fled. And, of course, they didn't. But if they had have fled, if he wasn't being responsible and keeping them in the prison, if doors were open and they could just walk out, it was his life for theirs. That was the Roman rule of the day. If you lost your prisoner, that was it. You were to be killed. And so you tried to do your best at making sure none of your prisoners escaped. Now, when he found out that they were still in the stocks, that they were still in the prison, because they called out, and we'll get to the story, they called out to them because he was going to kill himself. Now, this is a man who had children and a wife, and he knew that he'd be killed by other Roman soldiers, and he said, that's not going to happen. I'm going to kill myself. Now, I don't know how they saw him, if it was something supernatural or if a light was lit and they could see something in the distance where this guy was going to take out a sword and kill himself, but they told him to stop. So let's get to that story. It says, verse 27, the jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, He drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Saul or Paul and Silas. He then brought out or brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, how how do you go from I'm going to kill myself to just tell me how to be saved? When Paul was probably praying and they were singing and the other prisoners were listening, the prisoners probably called out questions. What is it? Who is this Jesus you're talking about? And they prayed and said, Lord, give us wisdom to talk to these guys. More than likely, now I'm reading into it here, but it's just not a static event. It's not that they were thrown in, they prayed, they sang, 
The prisoners listened, and that was it. And then the earthquake. It, there's more going on here, and you have to think about, well, what's going on? How did the Philippian jailer even know to ask, what must I do to be saved? I'm sure Paul was witnessing to the other prisoners that no matter their, what their fate might be, that they would understand they could be saved eternally, even though their body might perish. And so the jailer, he would have been there the whole time. He's probably listening to what's taking place. Uh, you, you know, sometimes when you're speaking, if you're in a public place, and I've had this happen a couple of times. Um, one time was in Israel. We were, uh, it was the Sabbath day, and we happened to be at a location where, I, I forget what exactly was at that location, but it was my job to teach at that particular location. And on the Sabbath day, not all Jews are devout and don't work or don't drive somewhere. And what they'll do, they'll visit these sites and they'll hang out, the ones who aren't Orthodox, they'll hang out. And so um, the, our guide at that time was Amir Sarfati. Uh, I don't know if you know Amir, but it, it just does a great job. He's all over YouTube. And when we were there, he, he explained the place and then I, it was my turn to speak. And as I began to speak, uh, he did tell me, I think I mentioned this before, don't use the name Jesus, use Yeshua and use the uh, phrase Mashiach for Messiah because then the people will come in and they'll want to listen. And there was probably a hundred people around the area and as he began to speak about what the area was, I think it had to do something with uh, David and Goliath. And as I began to speak, the people came over and they started sitting down. And besides our group, which was there, there was probably another 50 or 60 people that were all hanging around because people want to hear about God. They, they start asking questions or they, they want to listen in on what you are speaking about when it comes to the scripture because most all of these people are they're Jews that were there. And it, it's happened other times in other public places, but... People will start asking questions when you talk about God. I mentioned this a few weeks ago that most everyone wants to talk about God. They have opinions, whether he doesn't exist or he does exist or they're not sure if he exists. They want to talk about God. So I'm sure that was the dynamic that was taking place inside the jail. And Paul and Silas had an opportunity to witness to these other prisoners and the jailer more than likely was listening to that. So it goes on in verse 31. They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved and you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. Now, just because the jailer believed, it doesn't mean that salvation immediately extends to the rest of the family. The rest of the family heard the message of salvation and they accepted it as well. And then this jailer had compassion on Paul and Silas, got them out of the stocks, dressed their wounds, fed them a meal because he was so thrilled that he was saved. Now, this is the motivation to do anything that the Lord would have us do. Why do you work for the Lord? Do you think it's going to get you merit in heaven? Do you think that God's going to look at you and say, Oh, look how spiritual you are. Oh, I really need to bless you for this because you're just doing everything right. No, we don't do everything right. The only reason we do anything at all that could be considered righteous or good is because Jesus saves us. That's our motivation. He's done so much for us. We need to do something in return. We can't just simply say, well, that's wonderful. I'm just going to live the rest of my life. No, we're, we're supposed to be dedicated to him. It's like in a marriage. When somebody gets married, the man, he's supposed to dedicate his life to his wife. Now, even Paul talks about this. The singleness, the man who is single really doesn't have to worry about this too much. But the man who is married, he's concerned on how he can keep his wife safe and happy. And if he doesn't do that, the man hates himself because his life is just going to be miserable. He has to learn to minister to his wife. Why? Because he loves her, but she shows gratitude in return, which motivates him more. You see the symbiotic relationship that's taking place there. But they both do it being motivated 
by love, the man says, I'm going to love you regardless of what happens in the future. And the wife responds and says, because you have loved me so much, I will do everything for you. That's the ideal in marriage. Now, we get tripped up a little bit on that because we're selfish on the inside. But that's the ideal that is pointed to here. This is why the Philippian jailer served Paul and Silas. It's because he realized what had happened to him that he had been saved. You know, if you, I was meditating on this this last week. I was, I was going through the Psalms. And in the Psalms, the people who wrote the Psalms, it wasn't just David. Asaph was one and there was a few others. They were worshipers. I, you listen to what they write or you read what they write and you go, Man, these guys were dedicated to worship. The way that they did it, the things that they said and how they explained their life was in relation to God. You go, wow. And then you look at the world. As Pat was saying, I just got really, I don't know, not discouraged, but disappointed in the things of the world this last week, the news that is out there. To give you an example of that, have you ever heard a... um, Christian choir of young kids. They get out there and they sing, especially if they've been trained really well coming from a, a Christian school and the person who leads the kids in singing. They're, they're, it, it's just wonderful to hear the harmonies that are there. I used to take my girls uh, when they were in private Christian school to Santa Maria, California, and they would have competitions. They'd have competitions for singing. They'd have competitions for piano playing. They'd have competition in mathematics and reading. And we go up there, and these kids were just fantastic. You'd listen to the piano playing, and you go, they should be a concert pianist. And they were just like high schoolers or elementary schoolers that would be there. And, and then the choirs that would go in, and they would sing and, and my other granddaughter, we went up to uh, Fullerton up there, and we'd listen to them sing. And you just want to sit there. It is so beautiful to listen to them singing. Well, this group of kids from a Christian school went to the capital, the Rotunda, Rotundra, this last week. And they all lined up, and it was being filmed. This was on the news. It was being filmed by, excuse me, that's an old term. We don't film anymore. It it was being recorded on a phone. And you saw what was taking place. And they started singing. And in the rotunda, if you've ever been there, it's this large domed area. And there's statues all around. And if you sing in there, it just reverberates. It's like uh, St. Catherine's, I think, in Israel. You, You walk into there. And if you sing, it just echoes. And it's a beautiful sound that is in there. Well, that's what the rotunda was like. And they decided to start singing the Star-Spangled Banner. And there were probably about 30 kids. And they had the harmonies. And you could see the conductor. He's just leading them right in the middle of the rotunda. And there are several people that are just videoing it. And then all of a sudden, a guard comes up to the leader there and says, You have to stop because somebody may be offended at the Star-Spangled Banner. And my heart just dropped. If you can't sing the star-spangled banner in the rotunda of the Capitol building, what what is going on? And we live our lives because so many people are going to be so offended by anything that we have to say. We can't say anything. We start freezing. And we're not supposed to live like that. And and so I was getting a little discouraged, and I thought, no, we, we just need to... We need to keep in line. We need to keep the positive attitude. And when the Philippian jailer was there, the world was in turmoil at that time. The Roman government was just heinous in its carrying out acts of violence against people, just simply brutal in everything that they would do. And yet Paul and Silas lived during this time, and they were jailed unjustly. And yet they they didn't complain too much, but they did make sure that their rights were were made known by everyone who was out there and they stood up for them. Now they did this in a civil act. This wasn't a religious act. And this gives motivation for us as well. Like civilly, we should be able to stand up and say, no, this is the way things ought to be according to our government, according to the Constitution of the United States. And and like I said, Paul and Silas did this in a civil manner. It wasn't a religious or spiritual manner. And we're going to get to that 
in just a minute. But the requirement for salvation is belief, hope, and trust. This is what God wanted Paul to instruct the Philippian jailer in. Now, imagine if God wanted to save somebody and he told you, I want this person to be saved, but you're going to have to go through a big trial to get them saved. And you haven't even met them yet. (coughs) Excuse me. And he says, yeah, you're probably going to be injured physically. And you may even think that you might die at some point, but eventually you're going to end up talking to this person and this person is going to be saved. Would you sign up and say, I'm willing? Or would you say, yeah, I don't like pain very much. I don't don't know that I want to go down that road. Imagine what had to happen for this Philippian jailer to get saved. First, Paul had to be told, don't go to Asia. I want you in Macedonia. Get to Macedonia, and I want you to go all the way to Philippi. Now, how he got there exactly, I don't think God came down and said, Paul, go to Philippi. I I don't think it was like that. I think he was just going to these different cities. Well, let's try this one. Let's try that one. He got to Philippi, and when he was in Philippi, he rebukes this girl who has the demon. The city's in an uproar. They get beaten, thrown into the jail. God says, okay, we're almost there. This is almost a touchdown. Now... I want you to start singing and praying. Everybody else hears the gospel. The jailer gets an earful. Earthquake. Gates fly open. And God says, it's almost time. Tell him not to kill himself. Whether he could see it or not, or it was supernatural, we don't know. And he comes in and says, what do I have to do to get saved? Would you be thrown into prison and beaten in order to get somebody saved that was in a jail? I I don't know. Even if it, of course, hopefully it would be unjust. that you'd be thrown into the jail for. But that's what happened to Paul and Silas because God wanted the Philippian jailer saved. Not only the Philippian jailer did he want saved, he wanted the entire household saved. So how much would you or me, how much would we be willing to endure in order to allow somebody to get saved, for God to use us to get them saved? Have you ever thought about that? What is it that you would give up in order for one person to be saved, would you give up everything? Would you give up your house? Would you give up your vehicles? Would you give up seeing your family? You know, when Paul would go on these trips, if he had family, extended family, I don't know if his parents were alive or what the case might be, or if he had previously been married, some people say yes, some people say no. Would you give up all of that in order to see somebody get saved? It's something to think about. And could you turn to God right now or in the afternoon and say, God, whatever you want, if you want me to get rid of everything, if you want to take it all away so that I will be used, so that somebody will be saved, please do it. I wait for you to do it if that's the case. Can you pray that? Can you go before God and just ask him, Lord, whatever you want to do. It's something to contemplate here. Now, going on, not that we have to give up anything, but the question will remain, are we willing to do that for the sake of Christ? And are we willing to sacrifice everything in order to fulfill the calling of God in your life? And I have to ask myself the same question. Now, we can't possibly know how many people have been saved through the ministry of Paul, Barnabas, Silas, and their companions. But God has literally used them to reach millions and millions of people. Their influence has extended to us today, and they lived 2,000 years ago. And I gave some thought to this as well, and how many people eventually were saved because of the future ministry of the Philippian jailer. So this Philippian jailer gets saved. He's so thrilled about it. He takes Paul and Silas. He takes care of them. But then who did he go tell after that? Did he tell somebody? Yeah, I got saved and Paul and Silas were there and this is what happened and this is the way to be saved and I understand what sin and judgment is and what salvation is. How many people did he go save? Now ask yourself the question, and I I do this to myself as well. How many people have you influenced into the kingdom that you've actually prayed with to receive Jesus Christ? Now normally, you don't get that chance very often. It, It comes along, I think, in a blue moon where somebody says... 
yeah, I, I want to be saved. I want to go to heaven. Please pray for me right now, please. And you may not have had many opportunities to do that. And it probably caused you a little bit of anxiousness on the inside to think, well, how will I do that? How will I pray for them? If they want to pray and do they follow me when I pray and am I doing this just right and, and what are the dynamics of it, the, the mathematics, how do I line this up just right and you start overthinking it. But how many people have you had that chance? Now, the first thing I'd like to do is show you something, the influence that Paul has had <clears throat> and not only Paul, but if it's Lydia or if it's the Philippian jailer or anybody else that they run across, then they go out and they start sharing the good news as well. Now, Daryl, if you could bring up the first missionary journey there, I want to remind you where Paul went here. So if you can see, and I'm going to come around and look at it as well. Oh, that's almost clear, right? So you can see Antioch on the right here and how he takes off down to Cyprus and he goes up to Pamphylia and to Antioch of Pisidia, Lyconium, the area of Lyconia in Iconium and Derby, And then he comes back around and he goes back to the base, the Antioch. Now remember, the church base shifted from Jerusalem to Antioch because of the persecution that was there. Now the apostles and the elders were still in Jerusalem but the missionary outreach moved. God wanted it out of Jerusalem. Now show the second missionary journey, if you would. Now remember, if you look up at Asia, you see Asia at the top there. Now what happened from Antioch, they went back to Antioch, and they went to Tarsus, and they started going through Asia again, and God told them, no, don't stop here, keep on going, and he went to Troas. And once he went to Troas, he saw Timothy and the mother of Timothy and the grandmother, Lois. Uh, they were in Troas, so he picks up Timothy there in Troas, and he goes across the Aegean Sea to Macedonia. And he starts going through all of those cities in Macedonia one at a time. The second one, first one is Neapolis. Second one is Philippi. He goes to Philippi there, and that's where all of this is taking place. Now, when this is taking place, of course, we know the Philippian jailer. We know that story. <clears throat> and we'll get to the part where he is released from prison and he takes his civil responsibility and he communicates it to everyone. But you notice that he's just not in the area of Asia like the first time. He goes on to Macedonia. And you go, okay. And he makes that trip. And that's the second missionary trip. The third missionary trip, he just goes back to all those places again. So as I previously stated... Barnabas and Timothy, or excuse me, Barnabas and Mark, they go back and they uh, reroute the first missionary journey. Just check up on the believers. The second missionary journey, Paul goes out. We have it right here. And the third missionary journey, he repeats that just to make sure everybody is okay. And then he has a third missionary journey. You want to bring up the next slide? Now, you can hardly see this. But if you open up your Bible in the back of your Bible, you probably have a map that shows all the missionary journeys of Paul. And one thing I want you to notice, he goes from first it's Jerusalem, then to Antioch, then to Asia, then to Macedonia, down to Greece where Corinth and, and Sancria are down there. And he makes the loop again. And then his third missionary journey, it may have been his third, it may have been his fourth, we don't know exactly. He heads over to Italy. He gets shipwrecked in Malta and he gets up to Italy. Now, I don't know if you can see that on here. It's too bad it's, it's still not very clear. I tried to get a good picture here. It looked okay on my computer. I don't know about this one. But he, he goes over to Italy and you can see all the way in the left-hand side there. But that's not the only journey he was scheduled to take. According to the book of Romans, chapter 15, verses 24 and 28, he also wanted to go to Spain. And he said he's going to go to Spain and he's going to stop by in Rome on his way to Spain. So you see this migration of the gospel that is going from Jerusalem to Antioch to Asia to Macedonia to Greece to Malta and over to Italy. And then he, we think maybe he went up to Spain as well. You can see the gospel going from east to west. That's where God wanted it to go. Why didn't it go towards China? China. 
Why didn't it head off in that direction? That wasn't God's will. God wanted the gospel to go around the gospel, around the globe in this particular fashion. How many people do you think he influenced in that whole area there going up into Europe after that from Italy over to Spain? That's Europe. Millions and millions of people have been impacted by the ministry of Paul. And we are here today because of the ministry of Paul. God wants us moving. He wants us reaching out to other people to not be static. And that's the message of Paul's missionary journeys, going from one place to the other. Now, how many people, as I previously asked, have you had the opportunity, the privilege to lead them in a prayer of salvation? And then how many of those people have gone out and talked to somebody else? And then how many of those people have gone out and talked to somebody else? That was God's intent for the gospel, that we are not to be silent, that we're to open up our mouths. Now, as a result of this, there is another picture I want to show you. Now, I'll have to explain what this is. This is the area of Macedonia. This is in 2011. The blue area are Christian areas. This is in 2011. This is 2,000 years removed from when Paul went there. Now, the other areas that are there, the green are Muslim areas. And then the, the red are unknown. So this is the remaining effect of Paul's ministry in the area of Macedonia. Now, this is the Orthodox church that is there. There's some Catholic uh, areas there that are red, but it, it is completely covered by Christianity. And I'll get to an explanation in a moment about the Muslims in that area. But I had another picture I was going to put up there as far as the area of Greece or the country of Greece. How many are Christian in Greece? Now, that would be the Greek Orthodox Church, but they still believe in Jesus Christ. 98% of the people in Greece are Christian. And it's a small sliver who are either Muslim or otherwise. Now, there has always been an effort to stop the gospel from going out. Now, for us personally, what usually stops the gospel from going out? Us. We stop it from going out. We don't open our mouths. We don't want to. We don't want to talk to anybody. But there's also the idea of the world. Now, I'm going to take you back in history a little bit because... Paul influenced this entire Mediterranean region going all the way up into Europe and from Europe, then the people that got saved and it went north from there and we have the pilgrims coming over and of course Christianity spreading through the United States, the Great Awakening, which took place in England and also the United States and then it turned into the Methodist campgrounds and you had uh, John, or John and Charles Wesley and you had the Wesleyanism there. I mean, just everything was going from east to west. God wanted it to go that way and of course when it got to the United States people in the United States as well as England they said let's go to China and so you can see it's just encircling the globe the gospel now with that in encircling the globe and we see the influence that Paul had amongst these people what happened in the seventh century Muhammad Muhammad came about and started the religion of Islam and today the adherents to Islam are Muslims now Muhammad started out as a raider and he just started taking stuff and it turned into a movement and he made it first he started out like a military leader then he came back more of a like a philosopher and from the 7th century to today there has been a move to take over the entire world with a Muslim religion with Islam and they do so violently and they took over this whole area of the Mediterranean going over into Italy and the northern end of Africa and into Spain and there's a Muslim influence and that war has been going on for about 1500 years now people look at that period of time and they say all oh, those crusading Christians are so bad the Crusades lasted only about 250 years and it was in response to the Turks coming in and taking Jerusalem. And there was an appeal made to Pope Urban II 
Like, we got to do something here. You know, the Christians that are there, they're being persecuted, they're being killed. And so that's why the Christian crusades came in, was to protect the Christians. But history will tell you, if you listen to anybody in history, it's those evil Christians that were killing the Muslims. No, it's just the opposite. The evil Muslims who were radicalized, they're the ones that are killing the Christians and everybody who will not become a Muslim. You either become a Muslim or you are killed. And if you were a Jew and you don't convert, you are killed. If you're a Christian and you don't convert, you are killed. And so that's the battle that is going on even today. And it's coming into the United States. I just saw a video on the news in, uh, you know, how all these countries are opening up for immigrants to come in. I saw this video from uh, Great Britain. There was a Muslim cleric calling out to the people. It was a protest. Calling out to the people who lived in Great Britain, the English. Telling them that one day the black flag of Islam will fly over London. And he starts yelling it at him. And that's the whole goal. Is to bring all the Muslim population to the western cities and just take them over. And the birth rate of the Muslims in some of these countries like France and in Spain and in England is just skyrocketing. And that will take place if it continues on the same course. And that will suppress the gospel. Not only do we have the Muslim religion suppressing the gospel, but you have the world suppressing the gospel as well. So what are we to do? Be quiet when somebody gets offended because we give the gospel? No. We're supposed to be like Paul. And we still proclaim God and we still pray and we still give the gospel at every opportunity we have, no matter what the consequence might be. So after you have gone through the trials and you and and use them to encourage others, like Paul, he was beaten, he was jailed, he was moved in a miraculous way, the jail the jail doors opened up, the jailer got saved, the magistrates were humbled as well. Now, going through this verse 35, it says, when it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officials to the jailer and with the orders, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered for you and Silas to be released. Now you can leave, go in peace. But Paul said to the officials, and this is where he stood up for his civic rights. They beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens and threw us into prison. And now, do they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed because you can't beat and jail a Roman citizen without a trial. They had certain rights as citizens. And so, yeah, be alarmed because they could be thrown in prison for doing that. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of prison, they went to Lydia's house where they met with the other brothers and encouraged them. Then they left. They were the ones that were in prison and being beaten. And then they go to the house of Lydia and say, I want you guys to be encouraged. His blood, you know, scars and everything's just kind of dripping around. They probably got washed up. But you, you get the idea. The black eyes or whatever they had, the wounds from being whipped and they're encouraging others in the midst of the persecution. So I'll end up closing with this part, the first part of uh, chapter 17. And here we see that Paul went to Amphipolis, Apollonia, and Thessalonica. Verse 1 says, When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three days or Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. So you got four things here that he did. And this is kind of an outline for us. He reasoned, explained, provided proofs, and proclaimed. To reason is to think logically. So he started reasoning with the people. But first... You know, he just, he goes to the synagogue, but then he reasons with him. Then he explains or give, he gives details. He makes clear what he's talking about. He clarifies, he puts in plain words, he elucidates what he's trying to reason with him. Then he gives evidence. Have you ever heard somebody say, oh yeah, prove it. 
So he starts to prove it. He probably starts to prove it with historical background, scriptural background, reasoning, all of those things. And then he proclaimed Jesus Christ and him crucified. In other words, he did some preaching as well. God commands everywhere for all men to be saved. That's like preaching. Um, God desires that everyone is saved and it comes to repentance. This idea that we proclaim the will of God to the people after we have explained to them what the gospel is all about. Now, I've I've talked about witnessing before, how you do it. I I had an opportunity, I thought, uh, yesterday. I was at my house, and this guy's, he's walking around. We live in a cul-de-sac. He's walking around the cul-de-sac, and he's passing out cards. He's going up to the doors, and he's passing out cards. And he comes up to me, and he gives me some cards, and he says, I'm here, I, I do painting and landscaping. I said, you do landscaping? Oh, that's, that's good. That's nice. And I, I asked him how much he charged per hour. And, and he was the painter and his brother was the landscaper. And he lives in Escondido, but he does the painting. And he wanted to make sure I understood that. I said, I said okay. <coughs> Excuse me. And I'm thinking to myself, maybe this is an opportunity to give him the gospel. And I'm, I'm just letting him talk. He seems like a nice guy. We're going back and forth. And it got to a certain point in the conversation where it looked like he had to take off. And he goes, and God bless you. And I go, okay, well, this guy, he must be a Christian already. You know, and and I was looking for the opportunity. He was just coming up. Now, we have those random opportunities all the time. Have you ever had solar people come to your house? (laughs) You need some solar, right? Come on in. Sit down. I want to talk to you. You want to tell me something about solar? I want to tell you something too. Give them the gospel right there and, and see if they'll accept it or the salespeople that come to your house you know they, that happens on a similar regular basis so how do you do that how, how do you just bust into a conversation do you just say do you want to be saved do you want to go to heaven is that how you start it I'm going to leave you these points here and these points should come automatically but first you have to go out to where the people are you have to interact whether it's one person or several people you have to be around people We can't simply be couch potatoes. We have to interact with others who are out there. Uh, Whether we, like I said, whether we speak to an individual or you speak to a group of people, we want to make sure we are going out. Second, you have to strike up a conversation. Now, talking to people you hardly know or strangers can be difficult. How do you walk up to a stranger and just start talking to him? Hey, what's up? That's something that I... I've noticed, and I I actually saw something on this. Men, when they meet, if we're friends, you know how we greet each other? It's kind of an unspoken thing. If guys are friends, they go up to each other and go, Hey, what's up? The head kind of tilts up a little bit. But if it's somebody you don't know and you're a guy, you'll have to pay attention to this. It's usually, hey, what's going on? kind of put your head down like that but if it's somebody you know you go hey what's up you know it's, it's like this and there's some psychological theories about why that is the case and i started thinking about it I go that's exactly what happens to most guys and and i thought back i was in a supply house yesterday and i walked in there and this this guy comes walking towards me and he goes hey and i go hey and i go yeah i did that you know i actually did that to him but the friends it's like this so if you walk up to a stranger Guys, don't go like that. Oh, hey. Hey, you, you want the eyebrows to go up? You raise the head. And for guys, it's an unspoken language. You want to you pay attention to the body language which is out there. If you go up to somebody that you want to talk to, say where you, anywhere you are, if they're like this, what does this mean? They're closed off. They, they, they probably don't want to talk. But if you see somebody, they just have their hands down at their side, they're probably open to talking. And so you, you get those little cues. You know, it also, men and women are different in this way. When it comes to talking uh, to someone, men usually say something like, hey, how's it going? Right? Women don't do that. What do women do? How are you? 
That's what, I had this happen last week. The woman, she was, I was talking to her. She goes, how are you? And if the conversation doesn't go far enough, she repeats it. Said, well, how are you? It's like, keep on talking. That's how women communicate. And so women, if they want to talk to somebody, it's, how are you, men? Hey, how's it going? And you open up the conversation with something like that. And they may say, hey, good. How's it going with you? That guys do that. Well, and the girls, I'm fine. How are you? And the conversation starts like that. So you have to strike up the conversation. Now, the first line after that, what do you do? Well, you let them speak. And once they have speaked, you don't, this is what you don't do. You don't turn to them and say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Are you saved? You you don't say that to them because that could just turn somebody off in a minute. And then the second line you might want to say after you let them speak, you, you could say something as simple as, do you go to church? You can ask that to a total stranger. And usually they don't get offended. They'll say, no, I'm Buddhist or I'm Muslim or uh, sometimes and then that opens the door. You could say, uh, do you believe when you die you'll go to heaven? You could ask that question. Or do you believe that there's a God? You can ask these questions. But compliant people normally don't want to ask those questions for fear of offending or rejecting. And most people, most well, I would say this, they did studies on this. Most conservative people are compliant. They, they don't want to offend. But that usually is not an offensive question. The offensive questions can be myriad in another direction. And you know, this is the, I've got like eight points here, and I've covered three. You're going to have to wait for the next ones next week because we're at the time of community, a little cliffhanger there, a little hook. So you're going to have to be here next week to get the rest of these. And I'll review these, but, but it's the idea that I want to communicate to you that we're not supposed to be silent. Paul went from east to west, and he talked to every single person he could, and he was striking up conversations. He struck up a conversation with Lydia. She ended up being a base for the gospel going out, the influence that we have on just one person. One person going out there, and then that one person talks to somebody else, and it starts to multiply. That's what God has called us to do. Now, what we're going to do at this point is we're going to receive communion this morning. Kim is going to come on up, if you'd like to do that, Kim. And uh, the ushers will come up, and they'll separate this for you to be able to come up the center and go back out the sides. As Kim is playing this song, we're going to participate in receiving communion. And as often as we're doing this, we're supposed to remember Jesus Christ and him crucified the sacrifice he made so that we might be saved and continue to do his will and telling others how they might be saved. And of course, these are simply, they're not sacraments, but they're ordinances for us. So baptism is one and then uh, receiving communion is another. And this is what God commanded for us to do, to participate in receiving what is the cup, uh, the blood of the covenant, uh, so to speak, the blood of Christ, and also the body, which is the bread. We're to do that to remember his sacrifice for us. So as Kim is playing here, if you need to confess something to the Lord, this would be the time to do it. And and just call out to him and ask him to bless your efforts as far as witnessing is going and being relational with people that are out there because we all want to do God's will. And we're only able to do so by the Holy Spirit and the sacrifice that Jesus made. So, Kim, if you want to go ahead and take it away.